It's Thursday, September 18th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Pitches, we get pitches. We get pitches here at The Gist from publicists. And of course, they'll always be trying to take advantage of the news. Got this one. Hi, Mike. With so much negative press around professional athletes lately. Mm -hmm, That's true, especially football players, the one who beat the innocent. Yes, okay, but I'll continue. So much negative press around professional athletes lately. I thought you might have interest in this inspiring NFL player. Do tell. Julian Edelman, wide receiver for the New England Patriots, has teamed up with CoachUp, the nation's leading provider for private coaching. He's sharing his inspiring story about how he beat the odds, blue, 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 blue. Okay, so like hiring a private coach to be a professional football player, is this beating the odds and getting out of a bad neighborhood? No. And what about the idea of like, hey, you know about this guy who beat this kid or beat his wife? Well, maybe you could do this story based on my business. I'm putting that all aside. I want to talk about Julian Edelman, the inspiring story of an NFL good guy, right? There's a story from 2009. New England Patriots wide receiver Julian Edelman was arraigned on one count of indecent assault and battery Tuesday after being charged with groping a woman at a Halloween party at a Boston bar. All right, listen, so I looked into the story and the charges were dropped and they don't even seem to be dropped because, uh, yeah, we couldn't prove it. There's a decent enough indication that he actually didn't commit the crime that I don't want to smear him. Okay, so I'll hold out that perhaps he was falsely accused. Still, if we're searching about for the antidotes to all these players who have abused innocence, why not make it someone other than one of the 59 who have been arrested during Roger Goodell's tenure as commissioner for assaulting a woman? In the show today, and this actually actually came from a pitch, good publicity pitch, we're going to talk to Stuart Copeland. He was the drummer for The Police. He's done a lot of movie scores like Wall Street, and now he has a new project which is scoring a major motion picture from 1915, and in the spiel, heat and murder. But first, books, bullying, and Bazelon. So time was celebrities, just in order to cash in on being famous for being famous, used to have perfumes, lines of perfumes. But, you know, I don't know if you've uh, noticed this, but they've gone actually belly up the Justin Bieber perfume. No one wants to smell like Bieber. Taylor Swift perfume, also not doing well. So what's a celebrity to do? Well, they could write a children's book. That's kind of an ongoing trend. They could write a children's book about bullying. That's a more specific trend. In fact, it's such a huge trend that I wanted to focus on just a niche of celebrities. It turns out that tons and tons of sports stars are writing children's books about being bullied. There was NASCAR star Matt Kenseth. He has a four-book series about bullying. There's Boston Bruins player Milan Lucic. Not Cool to Bully in School is his book. There is LPGA golfer Dottie Pepper, who wrote Bogey Tees Off, a lesson about bullying. And there's R.A. Dickey of the Toronto Blue Jays, who wrote Knuckleball Ned. Well, joining us now to break down this oeuvre of bullying content is Emily Bazelon, Slate's resident, just about everything, but also author of Sticks and Stones, which is uh, the best book I ever read about bullying. Hello, Emily. Thank you, Mike. Hey. So before I assigned you to read all these uh, children's books, you probably come across a few already about bullying. 
Yes. And even books that are about kids' lives by sports figures. So my favorite one like that is by Tiki Barber and his brother. And it's a book about brothers. It's called My Brother's Side. Okay, it's not directly about bullying, but it is really good, which I will not say for these three books that you assigned me. In general, was there a theme throughout all of them other than it's not nice to be a bully? Very oversimplified conflict. Mm -hmm. So mean kids brought to task by nice kids. Mean kids immediately recognize the error of their ways and turn into at least apologetic kids overnight in a way that no child would recognize as reality. Okay, so that's a that's a good critique that they probably won't even appeal to the actual intended audience is real. But I guess the people who write the books just feel, hey, if we have a message and our message is being mean is not nice, then we become good people all of a sudden. Yeah, look, I mean. In theory, I'm all for this trend. Sports figures are powerful role models. And when kids see sports figures talking honestly about their experiences in a heartfelt way, sending out a message, I think that can be powerful. But it has to feel real. And none of these stories, even the one, the um, it's not cool to be a bully in school, Mm -hmm. that actually stars... What's his name? Milan Lucic. Milan Lucic. (laughs) He's like the teenage character in there. And yet the voice of the story is nothing like any real kid would actually talk. And so I just fear that it comes off as either just completely like not memorable throwaway or as something that kids will make fun of. Because the thing about bullying prevention curriculum is that if kids think they're just silly and beside the point, they'll start mocking them. And then it's like the whole enterprise of preventing bullying becomes a joke. In fact, the word bully and bullying have become a problem in a lot of middle school and high schools because they're seen as sort of babyish. And so you have to talk about what kids are actually going through, like the real tensions and conflicts, instead of just dumbing it down like that. Well, this. This, these books are intended for five, six-year-olds. I read it to my five-year-old and had my seven-year-old read it to me. And, and how th- did that go? They liked the baseball book, uh, the baseball book, which is an anthropomorphized baseball and knuckleball Ned does not go on the straight path of a fastball or even the curved path of a curveball. But there are some interesting he pictures there. like a knuckleball. That's right. And I explained what a knuckleball was. Bogey, on the other hand, they're not really into golf. I explained what a fairway was. The character of the piece of bubblegum seemed a little weird. Random. As, yes, There's a, a good weird. glossary of golf terms in the back of that one. <laughs> That's right. I would agree that of the three of these books, the yes. R.A. Dickey Knuckleball Ned book is the best one. And the art is the only art that's actually like, okay, this is Right. So my question is, yes, I think you're right. You tell a 12-year-old a story this simple, it it might be mocked. But is there some value just to have a very simple don't be mean to others message to a five-year-old? It seems like a yo gabba gabba don't bite your friends thing. Yes, sure. I will be curious, though, if your kids ask to read this book again, if it joins their litany of regulars, which I'm sure they have because kids have their favorite books they return to. And maybe my kids are weird. I'm sure they are. But they tended when they were little to want books that had a little bit more going on in them than these. So one of their favorite books was a book called Yoko, which is about a little Japanese cat. And there's an international food day in her school and she brings in sushi and everyone's like, ew, that's really slimy and gross. And then another kid actually wants to eat it and they end up in the end in a charming way designing a little menu together. It's pretty simple, but the whole thing just feels more real. The art is beautiful. It's a Rosemary Wells book. I mean, she's amazing. 
thing. But I just feel like these books are like the lowest common denominator. Aside from the fact that if the books don't quite get there, they could be mocked. Are they getting anything wrong about bullying or what, you know, the best practices of bullying education would emphasize? Well, look, the... Lucic Milan book says Milan Lucic. Sorry. Yes. That's cool. <laughs> the hockey book yes. accurately says that an element of being a good leader is standing up for kids who are in trouble. That's a good message. It's not the only or even the primary way that you get kids to help each other though, because in the end, confronting a really mean, intimidating, scary kid is a lot to ask of most children. And, now and in the two books where balls are the characters, I thought weirdly as a Deus ex machina, a female ball comes in and saves the day. I don't know why that is. civilizing female influence. (laughs) Right, that's ridiculous. But you know, most of the time, for look, there are some kids who are confident, absolutely, we should expect them to stand up. And then there are a lot of other kids who are less confident for whom this is much more about in small ways, showing empathy to the victim. Like going up to someone asking if they're okay, inviting them to sit at your lunch table. Just stuff that's easier to do because it's less confrontational. And there's no recognition of that in these books. This is all about like telling the bully he's wrong and getting him or her to apologize. Yeah. So it does seem, though, that we have come miles in terms of legitimate anti-bullying education, that the idea of uh, anti-bullying awareness is now passe. I mean, I think just about everyone's aware of it. Yes, there are posters everywhere. So these are all good things. Do we have any way to quantify if it's working and bullying is going down? How much of it is just part of the human condition? We're never going to eliminate it. I do think that schools and communities with real smart intervention. It doesn't have to be targeting bullying specifically. It can also just be really attending to kids' social and emotional development. In those communities and places, there is less bullying. We're not going to eradicate it, but we can send kids the message that everyone doesn't do this, and in fact, that most kids don't like it. And that actually helps reduce it. So I don't think that this is hopeless. I do think the internet is like a whole other dimension of kids' lives that has posed its own challenges. All right. So Maybe skip uh, Dottie Pepper. I know many in the audience want to just buy everything that Dottie Pepper, LPGA golfer, puts her name on. But what's a what's a really good bullying book? My favorite book. picture book about bullying is called Ben Rides On. It's by Matt Davies. And it's funny and playful and has a kind of surprising little twist at the end. And I think playfulness is an essential element of picture books. Emily Bazelon covers the courts, covers women's issues, covers feminism, covers bullying, all this stuff for Slate. Or at least pretty soon. We're going to have to say she did. She's moving to the New York Times. We'll miss you. You'll still be on the Gab Fest. You'll still come on the gist. Absolutely. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for having me. Stuart Copeland is best known as the drummer for the police. They were a band that were pretty big. You probably know them. But his latest project's kind of amazing. Stuart Copeland has produced and scored many films, uh, including the original Wall Street. Now he's taken on Ben-Hur. Not the one from 1959 that you know of, but Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, the 1925 film. People who know the silent era know this film as a triumph, 
and also one of the most expensive silent films ever made. In fact, it literally would be the most expensive silent film ever produced were it not for 2011's The Artist, but that's only because of inflation. He's made a roaring new score. He performs it live, and Stuart Copeland joins me now. Hello. Hello, hello. I'm so disappointed to hear about that modern movie, which blows our Ben Hur out of the water as the most expensive silent film ever made. It's not right. So you'll be performing this with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Have you done it live before? The uh, Virginia Arts Festival in Norfolk, Virginia. Its world premiere was there, and it was a terrific performance in some sense that I felt that after all the rehearsals, I really nailed my part. I was so proud of the orchestration. The orchestra played beautifully. But all that was nothing because no one paid any attention. The film uh, completely drew everyone's attention and blew everyone away. Jack forgot about having worked on the movie and, and absorbed the magnificence, the power, the drama of this incredible movie. I'd kind of forgotten that part. I was busy playing my drums and working out what the orchestra was doing. But on the night, the film itself brought the house down. Well, of course, the music aids in that. I mean, if it were really silent or if it was a different, lesser score, it would probably have less of an impact. In fact, it definitely would have. It would be hard not to write great music for it because it, it has the ingredients that draw from a composer the best stuff. It has excitement with all of the, the you know the pirate ship battle where they're it's not a cast of thousands it's a cast of tens of thousands where they're crashing ships into each other in flames really right in front of the camera those aren't CGI those are real big ships full of people in flames crashing into each other yeah the, so the film has this excitement which composers love but also the spiritual element as well even for a craggy a uh, heartless liberal like myself over here in my secular world, am deeply moved by the spirituality of this film. Unlike the Charlton Heston movie, which was just Ben-Hur, this is Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. It really is spiritually powerful. That's the stuff that gets composers really going. And Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, was the original title of the book that the uh, Civil War veteran Lou Wallace wrote. And when this film came out in 1925, you know, the Wallace book was written in uh, 1880. So, you know, people would have been alive, certainly alive, who read the book. The book was really fresh to them. And, of course, this was state-of-the-art movie making. My question is, is there any way to know, is there a score, is there any way to know what musical accompaniment went with it originally, if any? I got a letter from somebody saying that their grandfather had in his papers a score. And I had thought that there wasn't one, but there was. And it was a piano sheet of the themes, the Masala theme, the, the Jesus theme, the uh, Ben-Hur theme, and various action scenes. There were sheets of music that went out to the local organist who would crank it out on his local gear. I've not seen this document. I'm actually relieved to hear that there is such a thing because so much went into the detail of the film. I mean, they didn't have CGI. They were just beginning to figure out color. This is one of the first uses of not even full-color film. It's like two-color or three-color instead of four-color. It's like a halfway transitional phase of, of color film. So it amazed me that they wouldn't have addressed one of the major emotional components, which is the music. And they wouldn't have been ignorant of the connection between music and drama because, of course, these were all opera lover folks, and their audience were being tempted out of their usual fare of entertainment, such as opera, into this newfangled movie theater 
So, it's a relief. Yes, there was a score. And speaking of throwing everything at it, according to Wikipedia, and I think this is true because I tried to uh, confirm it, this is a huge MGM film. It was produced by Louis B. Mayer. And the extras in the chariot race scene included John Barrymore, Lionel Barrymore, Joan Crawford, Mary Pickford, Harold Lloyd, like everyone in the MGM galaxy. Just, I guess, we need bodies. Let's go, Lillian Gish, sit in the crowd. Well, you know, I'm not that much of a of an old movie buff, so I wouldn't be able to spot them, but there are, mysteriously, in the crowd scenes building up to the race, which is a very big build-up, there are kind of what seem like gratuitous shots of spectators, and I'll bet you those are the, ca- the characters that you just mentioned. Yeah. Now, obviously, you've played live, you've played Shea Stadium live with the police, you've played big venues, and you've done film scores, which I would imagine mostly more solitary and definitely in studios. Was this kind of cool to marry the two, to have the energy of the live show, but also have it be a film score? Yes, because music and drama just go together so well. They really do complement each other. And, you know, when I write orchestral music, not for a movie or not for a ballet or not for an opera, I've got to think up a story. Yeah. You know, a concerto for percussion and orchestra, fine, but I still need a plot. And it really helps to have some color, some emotion, some drama, some scene um, when you're writing music. So, yes, the, the, the cool thing about film composing which I don't do anymore, by the way. I'm mm-hmm. fully devoted to art for art's sake. But the craft learned in that professional environment, that flinty-eyed um, environment, is that you have a lot of podium time. You get a lot of chances on someone else's dime to get 90 guys on the mic and see what happens when you take off those mutes or try these mutes on the trombones or not. Or let's see, how about let's back off, let's pull out all the first violins and just, you know, you can experiment because you're not rehearsing for a show that night. You're working on a 20-second piece of music. The, you know, the craft, the part of learning how to use an orchestra and how to communicate to the musicians, that all came from a job. I got paid to learn all that stuff. And I would just uh, posit that doing art for art's sake at this point in your career, just hope to hell you saved all the police money. <laughs> uh, uh... I am happy to report that I am able to play music pretty much. You know, I, I make music and put it up on YouTube. I don't need to earn a living from that. I do enjoy playing my drums, and boy, I'm looking forward to playing with the Chicago Symphony. Yep. Orchestras are expensive, so that's got to be paid for. And I'm sorry, folks, that we have to charge you admission to come see that band because those guys, you know, there's a lot of them, and they have wives and little children to feed. Okay, so otherwise I, would, I promise you I would show up in your local park and play for free. <laughs> Stuart Copeland busking. Stuart Copeland will be performing his score for Ben Hur with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Richard Kaufman, on October fourteenth in Chicago. Thank you very much, Stuart Copeland. It's been fun. Thanks for being interested. And now the spiel.
And now, the weather. Overnight lows in the 60s for the Atlanta area, a seasonably pleasant 73 degrees in New York City, and L.A. is breaking out of a sweltering heat wave with highs, a relatively blessedly low 82 downtown, peak of 88 in the valley. Look, I know you don't use the gist for weather or for lottery numbers. By the way, 825, 36, 48, 50, Powerball number 23. But I am interested in weather. Even though you don't come here for the weather, in the past I have talked about some interesting aspects of weather, how it's a great leveler, how economies are swayed and central planners are flummoxed and fortunes are made, because you know what? Maybe you could use a sweater. To wit, a couple days ago, reported that the savings rate in America rose to 5.7% in July, the highest since December 2012. Household outlay on services decreased 0.1%, meaning it was the first time consumer spending declined in a couple of years. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. A plunge in utility demand because there's cooler than usual temperatures. It affects the overall economy in a big way. Summer weather has been quite mild, so households spend less on air conditioning, and they're going to use some of that money they're not spending to save. It's affecting a lot of things. And so that might be a 0.1% might not be impressive. What about $16.5 million? Listen to this. That's the impact that cooler weather has had. Uh, it's to the tune of $16.5 million. That utility in Texas made $16 million less this year because the weather wasn't hot. But the weather also has an impact on matters much more fundamental to human existence. And I mean murder. Overall, the link between temperature and homicide is well-documented and indisputable. Whether it's more people outside interacting on nice days, or the link between hot temperatures and hot tempers, which is an empirically proven thing, hot days mean more killings. And cool days, like we've experienced this summer, well, check out some of the numbers. In New York City, 214 people have been killed this year so far, according to the latest figures. Last year at this time, it was 237. New Orleans murder seems to be down. Houston murder seems to be down. All of those places have had unusually cool summers. New York didn't even have a single heat wave. That's when you have three days in a row with temperatures above 90. Now let's look at Chicago, which so far has 22 fewer murders this year than last. Here's Chicago Fox News 32. Natalie, the police superintendent says that the department's strategies are in fact, their crime-fighting strategies are in fact, now that we're two-thirds of the way through 2014, the strategy is paying off. Wet Moser, an associate editor at Chicago Magazine, has studied murder and weather in Chicago and comes to this conclusion. We've also had kind of a cool summer here in Chicago. You know, there's evidence that suggests that warmer summers lead to uh, more homicide. Chicago officials, however, are not talking about the role in temperature. In fact, here's Fox 32 reporter throwing to police superintendent Gary McCarthy. One thing the department's still working on, why the 4th of July weekend was so violent, much worse so far than this Labor Day weekend. We have a, a separate strategy regarding holiday weekends, uh, Memorial Day, Labor Day, and the 4th of July weekend. 4th of July weekend, we still haven't been able to identify what happened on Sunday. Sunday was the day that, that we lost it, as has been widely reported. We haven't been able to come up with the reason why. We had the same deployment, we had the same enforcement, we had the same amount of, of activity, and, and with it, it didn't work. Well, let's not look at all the things that the Chicago PD could have controlled, the factors like tactics and deployment, and let's look at that thing that's outside of its control, 
the temperature. The temperatures over Labor Day weekend were 76 on Saturday, high of 79 on Sunday, 79 on Monday. Fourth of July weekend in Chicago, Friday and Saturday were nice, 79 degrees. But on Sunday, the day that the police superintendent couldn't account for that spike in murder, the temperature peaked at 89 degrees. And that, says Wet Moser, is just about the deadliest temperature there is. Once you get up to about 90 degrees, the number of homicides just falls off the map. Now, of course, you can't trace anyone murdered or anyone's spike in temperature, nor can you point to a person who's walking around and say, there but for three degrees go you. But even though police departments will readily acknowledge that crime always goes up in the summer, when they seek to explain rises and falls of murders from year to year, they almost never cite the weather. Maybe doing so would be dispiriting, to think that all your tactics pale in comparison to a couple of clicks of the mercury. Wet Moser makes an analogy to a baseball team blaming a stiff wind on suppressing home runs. The fans would hear that as an excuse, not an explanation, and probably citizens would do the same thing if the police blamed or credited their crime numbers on external factors, like the weather. I'll also add this. The National Weather Service says that 2014 will most likely be Southern California's warmest year on record, and murder is down there too. But I talked to Nicole Santa Cruz. She writes the L.A. Times homicide blog, which chronicles every murder in the L.A. region. It's really the only place to get all the stats for all those different municipalities. And she says that in her city, the correlation between temperature and murder has never been that strong because people in L.A. are outdoors and interacting almost every day. So yes, I acknowledge that talking about the weather may not be the most scintillating conversation to have, but the officials charged with keeping communities safe and citizens alive have better start doing that, or else they'll be missing the fact that a few degrees can be the difference between life and death. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces The Gist. She's written and illustrated Mikey the Poorly Miked Mike, the story of a microphone with too much attenuation, who eventually learns to be accepted by the other pieces of audio equipment who value him for his trippy distortion effects, useful when Frank Zappa comes into the studio. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is the author of a book about an anthropomorphized drumstick who marches to the beat of his own drummer, which is entirely inappropriate for a drumstick, so he's summarily discarded. You can listen in SoundCloud or go to iTunes. We have Yo. You get the app Yo. Subscribe to podcast. We'll let you know when we're ready to go via Yo. I have no rhyme for the gist email, but it's a great thing. You go to slate.com slash gist email and sign up and we'll send you an email when the show's ready. Facebook.com slash slate gist. Our Twitter feed is slate gist. Email the gist at slate.com. And now announcing new from just books, the newest imprint of the gist group, Billy, the woolly bully pulpit, who was woolly. Billy wasn't like the other pulpits who he lorded over and mocked, but Billy was trying to cover up a shameful fact. He had started growing hair in unusual places, especially for a pulpit. A chance encounter with a certain U.S. president convinces him that there's a right way to be a bully pulpit without being a bully. And that president, Chester A. Arthur. Bet you thought I was going to say Teddy Roosevelt. Now, it's unconventional. Thanks for listening. I'm David Plotz. This week on the Slate Political Gab Fest, we argue about whether it's okay to spank your kids. Look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcast.